This is a crowd podcast. You got kids? Mm-hmm. You got kids, right? Yeah. A couple girls? Yeah. So, one of your girls is taken, Sam. God forbid that ever happens. And you just happen to know me, or know how to get hold of me now. What are you going to tell me, Sam? What are you going to tell me when I show up and tell you I can get your daughter back? You want me to you want me to make sure I don't hurt anybody? What are you going to tell me, Sam? About got tears in your eyes right now just thinking about that shit, don't you? Well, it's ugly. You know, our rules of engagement <laughs> are pretty simple. If we have to pull a trigger on one person, then they're all going to go. It's that simple. Okay, three, two, one, go! Hello, I'm Sam Walker. (laughs) After spending my whole life in the UK, just a couple of years ago, we, that's me, my husband, my two children, moved to the United States. Now, there are some really obvious differences to life here, like the fact that I go into my garden and there's a pool outside now. Can you go and get me um, aubergine? What? Um, whatever it's called, eggplant, eggplant, get that. My local supermarket's the size of an aircraft hangar, but you don't have to be here too long before you start to hear stories about a certain kind of person. I'll give you an example. After we'd been here about a year, we realised our landlord was a really, how can I put it mildly, bad man. He was threatening, he was abusive, and actually it was a really frightening time of our lives. But not long after I told a couple of friends about him, who then told a couple of their friends, someone got in touch with me and offered to take that landlord, and I quote, out into the desert. I can tell you now, this was a 100% genuine offer. And I knew from that moment, these people exist. People in America today who take the law into their own hands. I'm a memory of the worst thing that ever happened in a lot of these people's lives. Who can make things go away. There's a big difference between taking a life and getting rid of sewage. Huge difference. And then I met Casey. It's going to traumatize the shit out of you. Oh, good. I can't tell you how I found him, and to be honest, I don't even know his real name or what state he lives in. I also don't know, yet, what I really think about him. Whether he's a good guy or a bad guy, whether he scares me. I would kill them, their families, burn down their house, and eat their dog. Or makes me feel safer. I recovered a teenage girl that had been kidnapped once and was missing two and a half weeks for an apple pie on a 38 with a five-man team. Honestly, I've also got doubts about whether he's telling the truth. What if he's a fantasist? What if he's listening to this and laughing about how he's tricked that stupid British woman into talking to him for so long? I hit that doorframe so hard with his head, it split like a fucking pumpkin. Well, you can make your own mind up, because I'm recording everything that he's telling me. So this is KC, a vigilante, bounty hunter, protector, murderer, or just a really good storyteller. You know, in a pack of wolves, there's a leader. And one day that leader gets old and uh, it's leading the pack and it misses the kill. And when it misses the kill, the pack can't eat. 
So why are you talking to me? Why am I here? I'm here because I think that by telling our story finally, I think that there's going to be people out there that are going to realize that there's people like me and my team that will hunt you down and make you stand before God for what you did. So, where do you want me to start? Okay, Casey. I know Casey isn't your real name, but it's the name that I know you by. Just tell me. Of course it's my real name. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Letter K to letter C, that's my name. Okay. How are you, first of all, as we're talking today? How are you? How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm uh, I'm recovering. I've uh, I've got three broken ribs right now, and I had a mild concussion, but it's all healing up really well, so I'm doing good. Is that par for the course for you? Is that generally how your life goes, that you do some work, you get injured, you recover, you start all over again? Well, no. I mean, it. of course it happens at times. This time I was... I, I was injured recovering a a child and I was forced into a position where I had to move the timeline up. Okay. You know, it was a position where it was either go in right that second or, you know, potential great harm could have come to the child. Mm -hmm. I typically don't talk about anything that's happened in the last seven years for a reason. It's because there's a statute of limitations on things. Um, Mm -hmm. There's... (laughs) A lot of laws that we color over the gray areas of the lines in recovering people and things, assets, and uh, there's statutes of limitations on those things. So anything specific I bring up could lead a trail to back to me and my team and, you know, get me arrested. So what do you do? What's your job? Well, I'm a, <laughs> I guess for lack of a better term, a professional prostitute. You know, you pay me and the work gets done. Um our forte is recovering kidnapped children. That's our, our big drum that we beat. But we also provide resolution for people who can't get it through conventional law enforcement. How do people find you? <laughs> Word of mouth. That's it. People that just knew somebody that knew somebody that heard about me saving this person. And it's referral only. It's a lot to take in, right? Well, here's the story about the first time he ever had to rescue some kids. I was contacted by a man that had known me since I was a child. He'd watched me grow up and evolve throughout my life. He was also my father's best friend. And one of his employees was uh, was unfortunate enough to have his children kidnapped from him. Three of them, two girls and a boy. Uh, police and FBI had no leads. The man was unable to work, completely distraught. He contacted me and asked me if I was still finding people for a living. I'm like, well, yeah, of course. He explained the situation to me, and I said, well, I've never looked for kidnapped children. And he says, well, I really need you. So I grabbed a bag and got over there, and uh, he laid it all out for me. He agreed to pay all the fees, provided me with a vehicle, and uh, told me to take care of it. I ended up developing some leads. I had to go halfway across the United States to start my search from where the area they disappeared from. It took me uh, five days, and then I was able to locate the children in one of the southern states. High volume of traffic area, big city. Uh, They were in a mobile home park, being ready to be sold into white slavery. The ages were under 10 years old for the girls, and the boy was just over 10. 
The seven-year-old girl had already been raped when I found him. I was able to see one of the girls outside. There was no sight of the boy or the other girl. So I set up surveillance, even though I wanted to take the girl out of there immediately. I couldn't. I had to make sure they were all three together. That night, I decided to go in and try to make an extraction, even though I couldn't confirm the other kids were really there. So I uh, crept up the house, and I had to pick the lock to get in the front door. Once I entered the door, uh, there was a, a woman naked on the couch. A man was laying naked on the couch with her. Uh, there was drug paraphernalia all over the coffee table. There was money. Uh, there was nobody in the kitchen to the right. So I turned left, leaving those two there. I went down the hallway. There was two men in a bedroom in the back watching TV or playing video games. They were armed. Whenever they heard me coming down the hall, they got up. I took the first guy out as he came out the bedroom door, broke his wrist, smashed his face in the wolf door frame. I had a gun in his hand, so I just threw it behind me in the hallway. Uh, the second guy was coming up behind him. Uh, I didn't know if he had anything in his hand or not because I couldn't see because the doorway in the mobile homes very small. So the first guy was pretty much unconscious and occupying the doorway from his face, getting hamburgered on the doorframe. Uh, the second guy was already coming up, and I grabbed his wrist, and I just yanked him as hard as I could over the body of the first guy, and his head crashed into the wall in the hallway there, and I did stomp his head pretty damn hard. So they're both in the hallway. I still had my gun in my right hand, and I uh, went down the hallway to the next room, and the boy and the girl were in there. The youngest girl was not there. They were both sleeping. Neither one of them was even awake. I picked them up in my arms, and I saw there was a bag that looked like it had some clothes in it theirs. So I had the boy in my left arm. I holstered my weapon. I picked up the other girl in my right arm, carried him out of the trailer. I got him back to the, the wagon, and I asked him repeatedly where the, the little girl was, and he pointed to a trailer that was two trailers away. I was able to go over there and break the sliding glass door, and I got her out of that trailer. And uh, I was able to reunite all three of the children with their father. It took six days total, and made a big impact on my life about getting children back when they're taken away from their families. See, talking with KC is unnerving, intimidating at times. He breathes like he's ready for battle. Like a psychopath in a horror film. And the way he talks, too, he explains things by referring to other things that I haven't got a clue about. He explains them and then mutters other mad things I don't understand, and it just snowballs. So many questions, and as you'll hear, not all the answers. What I do know at the moment is that Casey has a team. People with monikers like Murph and Bareback, Casper, Forrest. He mentions these people a lot, and he tells me stories. This one is called The Mexican Job. So, uh... Forrest and I were out in Florida. We just wrapped up a job over in uh, North Carolina. And my pager went off, so I, I called out and uh, found out that there was a, an issue going on with a very high-profile oil company down in Central and South America. 
and uh, I immediately found out that they had uh, three executives that had been getting um, threats. They had each got a call. There was one woman and two men. They'd uh, been getting contacted by what they figured was the Mexican cartel or somebody threatening to kidnap them. I got on the phone and made a few phone calls to some contacts I've got down in Mexico and Central America. And I found out that it was pretty much a hotbed right now. Uh, a lot of tourists, uh, business execs, were actually being kidnapped. And then they would contact the families and demand ransoms. And if the ransoms weren't paid, they started providing pictures of body parts with local newspaper dates on them, things like that, so they would know that this, in fact, happened. And they would, of course, have, like, either a ring or a piece of their jewelry so they would know it was them. And it was pretty disgusting. These kidnappers... Are they purely motivated by money? Is it they just want cash? Or is this also a warning of, hey, stay out of our territory? That's a hard call for me to make. I mean, I've, I've been down to uh, Central, South America, and Mexico five different times pulling people out. And every time there's been ransom demands. So I know that, you know, everything down there is to generate income, whether it's drugs or prostitution or whatever. So I got hold of the CEO again. I told him, I says, look, you uh, need to evacuate those people immediately. And within two hours, he called me back and he's like, it's too late. He goes, they've already been taken. I got hold of Forrest right there again real quick. And I just told him, I was like, dude, I said, I think we got to go. So they sent a, a private jet to pick us up and uh, they provided me with everything that I'd requested all the gear that I would need, and they flew us down into Mexico. What do you mean by gear? What gear did you need? I've got three different weapons caches down in Central America and Mexico and South America. But the gear that I chose was to be rather a flamboyant tourist gear. And then they picked us up some clothing also for, like, nightlife because some things that you wear just aren't acceptable at different times of day. It's really hard to make us blend anyway because, I mean, <laughs> Forrest's black, so <laughs> you can't really hide that as a Mexican, right? So anyway, we got all the, the stuff we needed. They flew us in and dropped us off. Um, I had requested a, a satellite phone. And uh, I also requested that they buy a full-size SUV and also have it left there just north of the border for us because I knew that whenever we did the extraction, I was going to need to be able to get out of there and, you know, have a way to get back up into the U.S. They took care of all this in, like, no time. Everything was done. We got down, got a hotel room, started looking in the area. We had no clue where to even begin. Uh, we knew where they had been taken from. It was a hotel they were in because uh, we uh, got access to the hotel room. Their suitcases were open, partially packed. Um, a few things were tossed about, nothing bad. Anyway, what we did is we went out being tourists and listening. I speak Spanish, and uh, Forrest kind of speaks a little Spanish, but <laughs> he gets laughed at a lot. But he gets a lot of attention that way too, which, which was kind of good because that's what we wanted. We wanted people around us that we could buy drinks and, and fit with and get them talking. And, um, you know, we'd, we'd been bopping around a lot. At night, we'd been going out, hanging around, like, dance club areas, discos, discotecas. 
And uh, we've been going to cantinas and some stores and just trying to keep our ears open. And the best lead we finally got was we were at this cantina. And uh, some people were talking about how one of their friends had disappeared. So our ears kind of perked up immediately and we kind of started hanging around a little bit and they looked at us a little bit funny and we just asked them, we said, are you guys Americans? And they're like, well, yeah. And I said, we couldn't help but over here, you know what happened? And they're like, yeah, yeah, they're making, making financial demands. Well, there is one link we gave to the CEO to be able to contact us in the event there was a development or news that we needed immediately and he was never to call us unless it was absolutely pertinent and essential information well we were just right there and the phone rang and we found out that the uh, demands had finally been made and they were demanding money from not just their families but they were also demanding money from the company a lot of money <laughs> sorry casey why why would you ask the ceo not to contact you what's the motivation behind that well, cell phones can be tracked, okay? When we work, we never carry any electronics. I forbid it. So the phone is something that I really don't want to have with me. But it was essential in this instance because if the CEO had got any more information or a location or an address, I needed to know that immediately. And I told him he would only be able to use the phone one time. So as soon as he used that phone, it was gone. And so now we had a phone number and a location where they were expecting money to be sent to. So it took us about, yeah, I think it was about three days. We finally got a decent location on it. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't what I call a hard address. Hard address is where the, where the people would be. It was obviously some type of a drop. So we set up surveillance on it. And we were, we were a considerable distance away doing surveillance. I mean, we were using telescopic lenses. We were, we were a ways away watching this because... Whenever you're searching for something like that, I mean, these people have people out everywhere. They own the police. They own the community. They own everything. And if you just start driving around going, oh, there's the address, all of a sudden they know who you are. They know what you're driving. They know everything about you. They know where you're staying, and they know it that quick. And it took us about another two days, and we noticed that there was people bringing in packages. And... We noticed these same three people, we called them mules, kept bringing in these same kind of bags, which obviously were probably drugs, some of them were money, because I'm not an idiot. So Forrest and I pulled back, and of course, first thing Forrest said was, you know, dibs, dibs on that address, and I told him, I was like, there's no dibs here, dude. What did he mean by that? <laughs> well, we created the dibs rule a long time ago, okay, and what it is is, if we're working a job, I mean, we're, we're self-funded, right? And we do charge. We flat rate 250 bucks an hour from portal to portal, meaning from the time we leave till the time we get back. But there's a lot of pro bono work that we do. In fact, we do more pro bono work than we do paid work. So I created the dibs rule. So if we're taking something like this and uh, we have an opportunity to increase our larder for future funding, then that's what we do. But in this instance, we're in another country <laughs> going after people that needed to be cut back. And I told Forrest, I'm like, look, I'm like, there's no dibs, dude. I said, we are not here for that. We are here for this. And he looks at me and he's like, damn, KC, you take all the fun out of everything. And I'm like, Forrest, I'm like, we got to get this done. And he's like, yeah, copy. So what we ended up doing is we set up surveillance on one of those mules. 
and he always drove the same Mercedes. So we followed him. And it was hard. It was really hard following him because traffic down there was so bad. We followed this guy for two days. Finally, we found this guy, went to this, it wasn't really a house, but it wasn't a shack, and it was two stories. And the guy went in, there's iron gate, there was a guard at the gate, right? The little staircase had a little just an iron gate, and then there was kind of just a short wall, maybe four feet tall around the place. So we kept coming back over the next couple days again, about three or four days. And one of us would drive through, just drive by. And then we started kind of going into some stores in the area and little things like that and buying tamales at some of the carts just occasionally as we're driving through. And then we just get right back in our car and leave without even looking around. We totally were blending with the area as good as we could. So you're what, a couple of weeks in now from when you landed in Mexico? Yeah. And I'm sitting here thinking, man, this is bad. So I was like, I'm going to have to break protocol. So I sent Forrest to go make a phone call to the CEO. And I made him go back to our hotel to get a satellite phone that we had. And I told him that he needed to go outside of city limits to use it. And it was about four hours he came back. And uh, one of the people that had been kidnapped had, had been injured and proof had been sent to the the business executive that we were dealing with that made him realize that these people were for real. Are we talking a bit of that person was sent or photographic evidence? What was the story? Photographic evidence. It was what's considered a warning. (laughs) One of the men was beaten severely, uh, very severely, actually, enough that he was unconscious for the photo and he was covered in blood. And so now I'm sitting here going, okay, you know, that's the first warning. That means he probably gave him, what, maybe three more days? And in three days, they're going to start cutting off fingers or ears or whatever it is they're going to do. And they do. So Forrest come back to me, and I'm like, okay, we're going we're gonna to set up surveillance on this place. So we did. We finally got a head count on people coming and going. You know, we pretty much figured out there was about eight or nine So we started watching the food deliveries, and what we discovered was there was more food being ordered than would normally be for that amount of people. So we kept watching, and uh, it was late the second night, and I mean real late. We heard a muffled scream. It was pretty clear what it was. It was somebody in a lot of pain. And then they obviously had, like, their face in a pillow or something. But we, we could hear it. We, we had a parabolic mic with us. Well, just then, the guy that we started calling Poncho, he left. And as he's walking down the stairs, he carried this canvas-type purse. And it, it had a big strap that goes over the shoulder. And he always had it over his shoulder. He always wore this thing. And as he was coming down the stairs, he was stuffing cloth into it. And you could tell that it looked like something that was female's. And so it was our suspicion that he was going to make contact to send this package out. We decided we were going to take old Poncho down. We needed to find out what was in that bag. We followed him. We got maybe a half mile away. And uh, Poncho stopped to get a drink. We went up there and we ordered some stuff too. And whenever he was walking away, we'd parked right behind him. And so when he walked around his car to get inside, Forrest tapped him on the face with his elbow pushed him over into the passenger seat and hopped in with him. And when we took both cars, we just drove away. 
And we took him out in the country, um, quite a ways, pretty desert, pretty barren. Searched the whole car, and inside the bag was the woman's scarfs, but it wasn't a short scarf. It was like one of them really long ones, like women could put over their heads. You know, it was big, and it was really fine silk. I mean, nice. And there was blood on the scarf. And uh, I looked at Forrest, and he looked at me, and um, we knew that we had the right location. Did you talk to Poncho? Did you ask him questions, or did you just knock him out and look at the evidence? Well, Forrest tapped him kind of hard, and Poncho was only about five foot four, so his head was in line with the door. So when Forrest walked up behind him and stroked him with his elbow, he hit him in the temple, and his head bounced off the, the ridge of the car, and Poncho was still out. I mean, Poncho was out like a light. He was alive, but he was going to have one hell of a headache the next day. So we took Poncho about two miles from his car, and he was still unconscious, and we laid him there right on the ground. And... uh we turned around and went back. So Forrest and I went back to the hotel and we got what necessities that we would need there. Mind you, none of our gear was at the hotel. We'd stashed that at a different location. What was in that gear this time? What did you have on your list to take with you? Well, we were each carrying two handguns and a, a very short 12 gauge. Uh, we both had uh, collapsible batons. Uh, we prefer the 16 inch. They're the shortest ones. You can get the big ones that go out like 30 inches, but I like the 16 inch. I just like the short ones. We don't use weapons that are U.S. made. If you're packing a gun that's made in the U.S. or a common firearm that's carried by people in the U.S., it sheds a lot of light in that direction for everything. It, it could make an international incident. So you're constantly thinking about breadcrumbs, making sure you don't have a trail of breadcrumbs wherever you go. I do the best I can, ma'am. Okay. So anyway, we got geared up. And uh, put on this was this was so rough because it was so hot. So over the top of <laughs> over the top of our uh, mock turtlenecks, we we put on great big you know like cool tourist shirts that were loose. But man, it was hot. And plus, they covered all of our our guns that were on us and stuff. There's two of us and nine of them, and there's three people potentially inside that I need to get out of there. So our rules of engagement <laughs> are pretty simple. If we have to pull a trigger on one person, then they're all going to go. It's that simple. Anyway, there was this one guard that every night, he, he would kind of lean against the, the corner where the gate and the stairs were, and instead of watching, he just kind of dozed. And so the plan was for Forrest to go in there, slip over the fence, and uh, take out that guard and, and get the gate open. We couldn't have any slip-ups, and we couldn't have him coming up the stairs after us. So Forrest went in there, the guard reacted. And as he was lifting up his gun, Forrest hit him in the head with his 12 gauge, with the butt of it. He just smacked him right across the face. I mean, just boom. And the guy dropped pretty hard. And then Forrest was on him, making sure that he didn't get back up. Um, he popped the gate real quick. You can't hide the clank of a big steel gate. And when the gate opened is when things started to get real. Immediately, there was two more guards coming on the top of the stairs. And so right as I got to the entry point of the gate, Forrest had already moved up and was on the landing. So I was coming up behind him, and the guards were there. They had started to yell out. Forrest run up the stairs, and he hit him in the knees. I mean, he, he dove and hit him in the knees because he didn't know who or what else was coming. And I, I took out the second one. 
we dropped them there. We took weapons from each one of them. Uh, they both had Uzis. And uh, we proceeded to go inside the building. So we started clearing room to room. Um, and the first room was kind of like when you stepped in, it was like the back of the kitchen. And there was nobody in there. So we could hear the music coming, and then there was light flickering from the other room. And obviously there was a TV on. And so when we came into that room, there's three more people sitting on the couch. There's a two would be called a, a love seat here in the U.S. It was short couch against the wall. And then there's like a big leather chair, and they were watching a movie on TV. They had the big coffee tables in front of them, and they started grabbing guns. And one of those guys started shooting immediately. He got his hand on his gun that came up. Forrest was dealing with the guy farthest away in the chair, and the guy closest to him shot him. He shot Forrest right in the side of the thigh. Forrest yelled he was hit. And uh, as we took those guys out, there was another guy coming out of the hallway, and uh, he had opened up, and I caught around, but it got me high on the shoulder because I was still turned this way. It went in, and it, the slug was still in me. So I turned around, faced him, dealt with his little ass, and uh, we started going through. Forrest took the hallway in front, limping with his leg. One of the dead guys had a shirt, and Forrest just ripped the bottom off his shirt, and he tied it around his leg, okay, quickly, and I mean fast. He never even set his gun down. The hallways went clear around in a circle. So it was like, I went this way, Forrest went this way, but then they turned and they kind of met. So we get to the first room and the woman was in there. Um, that was me, I found her. Her arms were huddled to her chest, her legs were up. Part of her dress was torn on the bottom. She was wearing a business type skirt, you know, obviously she'd been grabbed. She only had one shoe on and uh, she had her fat lip and and Forrest let out a yell, I've got two over here. So the two guys were in a room on the other side. We got the guys, got them up, got them moving. And uh, the guy that was beat up was in pretty bad shape. But I told him, I'm like, look, I said, I can't carry you. You got to walk. You have to walk. And he's like, I can do it. I said, just keep your mouth shut and do what I say. How do you introduce yourself, Casey, when you meet these people? Do you go, I'm the good guy. I'm sent by your CEO. Well, it was obvious that I was there to get them, and it was obvious that I wasn't Mexican, and it was obvious that I had a gun in my hands. I said, follow me. I said, no questions, no talking, no nothing. I said, you guys screw this up. I said, I'll leave your ass here. I said, me and my guy, I'll leave. And there was no, no words. They didn't say nothing. They just nodded their heads. So as we're leaving, there's two more guys coming up the stairs running with guns. They started shooting at us, and at this point, Forrest took both them out. He, he had his handgun out, and he took both of them out right over the top of me. And we were, we were in that staircase. We got to the bottom, and the car was across the street over here this way. We could hear sirens. We could hear, we could hear the federales coming, man, and there was more than one. I mean, gunshots had been fired. You know, we'd been in there maybe two minutes, maybe three tops. I mean, it, it was fast. So we got in our rig, and we, we hauled ass and they started pursuing us. Now, if you're like me, you were shaking your head several times during all of that. Do you think he's making it up? Or is it too far-fetched to be made up? Well, it gets a lot more bizarre, trust me. I also asked Casey about guns. As a British person, it's something that's never been part of my life, but I wanted to know the first time he'd ever use one. And the first time, he'd had one pointed at him. 
I'll play you that in just a moment. Hello there, I am Tom Fordyce and I'm one of the producers on American Vigilante. I do hope you're enjoying the series. Now, if you need a break from KC and you're feeling peckish, why not try Factors No Prep No Mess Meals? They're a great way to meet your wellness goals in time for the summer, if it ever arrives, with chef-crafted meals like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus and Keto. Factor always makes fresh meals, never frozen. They're dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. And they taste really good. They've got loads of options from breakfast to dessert. There are 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week. Treat yourself to restaurant quality dishes with premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp and blackened salmon. But all without prep and the cleaning up. Head to factormeals.com slash American50 and use code American50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code American50 at factormeals.com slash American50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right. 
Now, where were we? We were being pursued by two sets of federales, and we could hear other sirens coming from other places. We're in a car, hauling ass, as Casey puts it, across a town with three hostages, somewhere in Mexico. Oh, and Casey and Forrest have both been shot. Forrest said, Casey, I'm bleeding really bad. I'm bleeding really bad. And I'm like, yeah, me too. And he goes, I don't know if I can make it. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't know if you can make it? And he goes, I'm, I'm light, meaning he's lightheaded. We had to get out of the car. I mean, he needed attention or, or he was screwed. So we got into this little burrow and I pulled in there real quick. And I'm like, we got we to ditch the car. And I got out and I pulled out some quick clot and I slapped it into Forrest's leg on both sides. I wrapped it with a gauze bandage that I had with me. Quick clot? What's quick clot? It's a powder that when you slap it on a wound, it clots immediately. Instant bandage type thing. And I popped a morphine pill in his mouth and I told him, I'm like, dude, you need to hold your shit together. And so I put his arm over my shoulders and I lifted him up and I told the people, I said, come on. And the, the police cars were getting closer and closer and I could hear, you know, a lot of Spanish speaking going on and yelling and I saw one of the Federales cars drive by, like where we turned in. They drove by and down this way, and then I heard it turn. So pretty much they were setting up a perimeter. We were going down this alleyway, little street. People were behind us, and I run smack dab into one of the Federales. It's a, a woman. <laughs> She's partners with this other Federale. Our observation had led us to believe very much that the Federales, at least some of them, were being paid to not see what was going on. So I took the woman out. I just I just jumped on her. I dropped Forrest. I jumped on her. I held her down, and I started telling her. I was like, look, these people were kidnapped. I'm just trying to get them out of here. And all she said was, you're bleeding, because my blood was dripping off my shoulder onto her face when I'm holding her down. And her partner was screaming her name. And he was getting closer and closer. And she said, wait a minute. She goes, I want to help you. And I like looked at her like she was stupid. I'm like, what? And so she goes, hold on a minute. And she got on her radio and said she saw us like a block away, like running the other way. So her partner immediately started hitting that way. And I looked at her and I was like, you really want to help us? And she's like, yeah. She goes, I've tried to do so much about these things. She goes, and all my requests are ignored. And I go, I go, you got to be kidding me. She goes, no. She goes, not all of us are bad. I was dumbfounded. I mean, here's this little five foot three Mexican woman, you know, <laughs> telling me she wants to help us. There's Forrest bleeding, three people scared shitless behind me. And she goes, come with me. And so we went with her. We got into her police car. <laughs> and we drove off. <laughs> I was driving, she was in the passenger seat, Forrest and the others were in the back. Because we were in a police car, we weren't stopped, we weren't harassed, anything. And we could hear all the chatter on the radio the whole time. I'm going to jump forward a little bit here, but what Casey told me was that the group stopped in a small town in the desert, all shacks and sheds. They managed to find one that had been completely abandoned and Forrest and Casey start to patch each other up. Finally, I... I get the bullet out. It was a nine millimeter round. It had kind of mushroomed a little bit, so it tore his leg up. And uh, I got his wound plugged up again. And then he went to work on me, and the, 
The bullet that was in me was sticking right here out of the very front of my shoulder. It wasn't sticking out, but it was under the skin right above my clavicle. He started laughing. He's like, hey, Casey, I just need your knife. And he cut me, which he was really happy to do, and popped the bullet out. Plugged me back up with some quick clot. I put a fresh shirt on. And we got back in the car and headed back north. You clearly saved Forrest's life during this operation. Where well, Forrest did... saved mine, too. Well, yeah. <laughs> where, where, did, but where did you get your medical training? Was this oh, in man. a previous life? Or... I used to watch Captain Kangaroo. Come on. <laughs> Cracker Jack box. That's where I got it. It had one of them send-off things with the extra tabs. I sent it off and got the little <laughs> medical kit. That's all you're getting. <laughs> okay. All right. You were pretty injured in this gunfight. Forrest perhaps more injured just because of where he was shot. But have you ever felt, oh, my God, this is it. This is the time it's going to finish me off. I've been there. I've been there, but I usually get that feeling like before anything happens, like that time. And yet you still walk in. Well, yeah, that's that's what I do. Besides, I got great guys around me that are going to make sure I'm okay. What's a typical year for you in terms of how many jobs you do? Can't answer that, Sam. I, I wouldn't know where to start. You know, there's times that I was injured severely and didn't work as much. There's times that I'd be gone three and a half months consecutively. It just depends. I want to know, as best you can describe it, to somebody who has literally only fired a gun in a fairground to try and win some terrible soft toy. What on earth is it like being in a gunfight? Well, let's go back to the beginning. Can you remember the first time you fired a gun? Did you grow up around guns? Yeah. Yeah, I remember the first time my dad got me a BB gun. I was five years old, you know, and I'm a kid. He told me, he goes, you don't shoot around the house. You don't shoot around the cars. Always know where your round's going. I mean, he taught me. And I went out, and there was this little Tweety bird that was up on a power line. And I, I had practiced. I was a pretty good shot. I took aim, and I shot that Tweety bird, and it fell down, dead, not 20 feet from me. And I started crying. And I picked it up, and it was about about a quarter of a mile from the house. And I walked back the whole way crying, this little bird in my hand, bleeding all over my hand. And I showed my dad, and my dad said, you got to eat it, boy. I said, what? What, Papa? And he goes, you got to eat it. And he sat there with me crying and made me pluck that bird. And he made me help him gut it. And I mean, it was so small, it's like the size of his thumb. And then he took me in the house, and he put the old cast iron skillet on the stove, put some butter in it, salt and pepper. And he made me sit there and cook it with him, and then he made me sit there at the table and eat it. And he said, son, he said, when you kill something, it's dead forever. He said, if you're going to kill something, it better either be for food or to save your life. He goes, other than that, you got no business killing it. You don't need to kill it because it's got big horns. You don't need to kill it because its fur looks pretty. Unless you need clothes, he said. Remember that. And that stayed with me my whole life. So what do I feel like when I'm going into something like that? I'm realizing that I'm going to change somebody's life. Maybe mine, permanently. 
There's one thing taking aim at a bird and shooting a bird. Can you remember the first time you took aim at a person? Did How did that feel? How different did that feel? Nobody wants to shoot people, you know? But when you're put in a situation where you don't get to go home to your mom, your dad, your, your wife, your kids, your cousins, you know, whatever it is you have, and you realize that it's you or them, then you do what you need to do to get home. But that's the situation you've put yourself in. You could just choose to do something else and not be in that situation, right? That's right. But then how many kids wouldn't be back in their mom's arms right now? You got kids? You got kids, right? Yeah. A couple girls? Yeah. So one of your girls is taken, Sam. God forbid that ever happens. And you just happen to know me or know how to get hold of me now. What are you going to tell me, Sam? What are you gonna tell me when I show up and tell you I can get your daughter back? You want me to you want me to make sure I don't hurt anybody? What are you gonna tell me, Sam? About got tears in your eyes right now just thinking about that shit, don't you? Well it's ugly. What on earth goes through your head when the gun is being pointed at you? You want the truth? Of course. I'm gonna kill you and eat your fucking heart. That's exactly what I think every time. The fact that I now even know Casey makes me feel kind of uneasy. But for better or for worse, I just feel like I need to get to know him more for my own peace of mind. Where's he from? What's his background? What scares him, if anything? Does he have a family of his own? And how do I stay on the right side of him? Next time on American Vigilante. Found out that a little girl had been taken. And I'm like, well, how long ago did this happen? He goes, more than two days ago. He got a pair of channel locks and applies it to the man's testicle. And he says, I'm only going to ask you one more time to tell me the truth. She looked at me and dried her tears up immediately. And she goes, you go, Papa. She goes, you go get that little girl. American Vigilante is a Crowd Network original. It's presented by me, Sam Walker. It's produced by Phil Brown and Steve Jones. The executive producer for Crowd is Mike Carr. Associate producer for Stowaway Entertainment is Jeff Singer. The music we used is from our partners, BMG Production Music. If you want another Crowd podcast to listen to, try Murder in House 2. It's the story of how a group of Marines killed 24 innocent civilians in the Haditha massacre and how the US government tried to cover it up. It's a 10-part series that took 15 years to make. It'll shock you, it'll make you think, and it will make you question everything you thought you knew about the Iraq war. Search for Murdering House 2 in your podcast app. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Come to order. This investigation is convened by Lieutenant General James T. Mattis, commanding officer. I want to tell you a story. May I call your first witness? Yes, sir. Close your eyes. Explosion goes off. Boom! We both yell clear. 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 It's a story about a crime that shocked the world. 
U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And a cover-up that reached into the highest levels of the United States military. Five, six, seven, possibly seven gunshots. It is also a story I recorded in secret. Evidence collected. Departing House 2 at 1555 due to a tactical situation which demands our departure. So join me, Michael Epstein, as I reveal the truth about the longest, most expensive criminal investigation in U.S. military history. Murder in House 2, a 10-part podcast series available right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast killer podcasts and slow burn media production subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows ohio is a land of mystery from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies from myths that have evolved around historic events and people 
to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. Something is introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. She stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. 